Isaiah 25 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, certainly one of my favorite chapters in Isaiah, and let me just tell you why. It starts way back when I was a, a child. So my dad is a pastor as well, and he, he would give me Christian biographies to read and encourage me to read them and probably monetize that and incentivize that in some way. I can't remember exactly. But he gave me the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Vermbrand, the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs ministry. How many of you have read... Tortured for Christ. So just a couple of you guys. I would encourage you, you're all probably old enough to read it now. I would encourage you to read it. I don't know if I was old enough to read it when I read it. It's, it's pretty bracing stuff. It's the story of Richard Vermbrand, who is a pastor in Romania, and his going back and forth into the communist prison for being a pastor, for being a Christian. And it's the, the you know, recounting of all of the difficulties that he faced in prison. But the one that, as you can probably imagine, really captured my imagination as a child uh, was how he told about how some of the most antagonistic guards, the communist guards, would collect some of the Christians uh, during their, you know, and hold like a little fake worship, a mock worship service for them, and uh, would try to get them to observe the Lord's table using human waste. And I remember reading that and just thinking, What? What is wrong with these people? I'm, I'm just a little Christian kid in a church. You know, I'm like, why do people hate this faith so much? What, what is wrong with these people? I don't understand. So, here's the problem. Here's what I didn't understand. And here's the context for Isaiah 25. Right, when, you, when you've got a bunch of eggs... Right? You want to put them in more than one basket. Right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Why? Because eggs are fragile and you never know what's going to happen. You're going to break them all. Right? So this has also been historically the approach of all people everywhere to religion. You want to have a diverse religious portfolio. Is that my? Yeah, there we go. People like to have a diverse religious portfolio. Right? So you think, you look at your life and you think, where do I need God's help? Right? So I, I got to go to work this morning, so I want, I want a God to help me at work. Who's the best God for work, right? It's going to be a different God than the God you pick for your drive, right? You got to commute. You need a car God. You need a God of transportation. So there's probably going to be different gods, right? Who's the, I want the best God for work. I want the best God for my commute. And then when I go home at night, I can't use my work God. He's got different priorities. He's got different values. I need a different God, and I want the best God. Right, for my home, I want the best God for my health. All the dip, right? An intelligent person is going to try to recruit all of the best gods for all of the different areas of their life to strengthen them and support them and help them out when they need help. So, this is the approach of all peoples everywhere. This was the approach of the Egyptians when God called Israel out of Egypt. It was the approach of the Canaanites, which, who were occupying the land that he was sending them to. It was the approach of Babylon, the approach of Assyria, the approach of Rome. It has been the approach of every culture, every civilization, every you know, tribal group that we peer through the bushes at. They're doing the same exact thing. Every, everyone's over here doing this. And then you've got this group of people over here whose first number one commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is a thing called covenantal monotheism. This is the thing that the Bible pre presents to us to follow. Monotheism means what? One God who is in a covenant, an exclusive covenant relationship with his people. 
Covenantal monotheism is being devoted to this one God who is devoted to us. And it is a singularly rare thing. There's no other covenantal monotheism anywhere in human history outside of the pages of Genesis. This is where we are first introduced to this thing. So it's very rare and very odd. And of course, it's not just in the cultures of the Bible that we find this sort of attitude towards religion in general, but to this day, right, pluralism is preferable. This is our modern phrase. We don't call it polytheism. We don't say there's many gods and you should collect them. We call it pluralism. That sounds more kind of intelligent and enlightened. Pluralism continues to be the preferred attitude of the world to religion, which is, pluralism is what? Believe whatever you want to believe. You want to believe that, that's fine. Just so long, here's the only caveat, as you don't hold any one thing with sincerity or exclusivity. That's the the fundamental doctrine of pluralism. You can believe whatever you want. That's great. That works for you. That's fantastic. You just can't be exclusive in your religious devotion. If your faith demands exclusivity, two things are true of you and your faith. First of all, you're foolish, right? Your God, your, your God is great at that. That's, what, that's great, but he's not going to be great at everything. I just don't think that's a good strategy to approach life with. You want a, a diverse portfolio, right? Multiple uh, faith egg baskets. But the second thing is that that attitude, your attitude this morning, friends, is wicked in a pluralistic society. It's wicked. How come you don't want to, you know, worship at my God's temple? How, you know, before we, before we, at our house, before we eat, we bow down to grandma and grandpa. You don't want to participate? You won't participate? You think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? Right, so... Covenantal monotheism is corrosive to civic values. <laughs> it's corrosive to com- community cohesion. And at some point, every culture decides that it becomes necessary to communicate to everybody that this is not good. We need to make sure that everybody knows that these covenantal monotheists, these people who worship the one true God, are not our kind of people. And so this becomes the history of God's people from time out of mind. We see this here in Isaiah 25. Look with me in the first couple of verses, verses 2 to 5. Where we read about these foreigners who are being brought down because they oppress God's people ruthlessly. Notice these things. Verse 2, you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it'll never be rebuilt. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold of the poor, a stronghold of the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. The foreigners are going to be brought down. They've treated God's people ruthlessly. But the world's persecution of God's people has been consistent ever since. We're going to be observing the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And as much as God's people are praying, it's not getting better. There's more persecution today than ever. This has been what has been the condition of God's people in this world. So, 
And kind of the question then that every intelligent person would be asking is, why hold on to this faith so tightly? Like, do you really have to have an exclusive relationship with this God? Is he really that insecure and uptight? No other God before me? I mean, like, you're the best, but do we really have to have this exclusive kind of faith relationship? Do we really have to be singularly devoted? And this is probably not a question that occupies your conscious mind very much. But this is the kind of question that I think we all feel. Right? We all feel a pull to diversify our faith portfolio. We all feel a pull to put our, our hope eggs in different baskets. I'm so thankful for Jesus and the hope of the gospel. I'm also really glad that I've got this plan. I love Jesus, but I wouldn't want to do anything without my plan. Right? And I'm so thankful for the rescue that God has worked in His salvation that He's brought about in Jesus, but I'm also so thankful that I live close to family. Because I like having Jesus for some stuff, but I need my family for some stuff. And I love the peace and the joy that, that God through the Spirit brings into my life, but I'm also... I'm also really thankful for my schooling, my intelligence, my affluence, all of the things that make me a little better than the Joneses. And I'm so thankful for the strength that God gives us, but I'm, I'm also really thankful for, thankful for my network of friends. And I'm, I'm really thankful for my abilities that make me a little... I can always go back on my abilities. If God deserts me, I, I know I can get the job done. I'm so thankful to have these things. Right, we all have this kind of pull to make sure that we're, we got God, we also got these other things. Here in Isaiah 25 is why we want to hold our faith tightly. Why we want to hold this faith so exclusively and be singularly devoted to the Lord. All right, so open up in your Bibles. Look with me in Isaiah 25 if you're not already. Turn there. So Isaiah chapter 25 comes after Isaiah 24. Last week we talked about Isaiah 24, which is a story of global judgment. The earth lies defiled underneath its inhabitants. And the, and the greedy, deceitful plunderers will greedily, deceitfully plunder. And it will continue and continue until the earth is empty. But, it, but the judgment ends, it lands in verse 23, where it says, The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. All right, so now God reigns. And so verse chapter 25 is kind of like the worship service in response to that reality. God has judged all things. He sits down and all his people now gather and sing his praises. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 25, which we just read most of, so I won't reread, they kind of restate what happened in, in chapter 24 in different language. Here, this is God brings down the wicked, the wicked city. He saves the poor and needy. Everything goes according to God's plan. And so verses 1 to 5 talk about the first part of God's promise, the first part really of the gospel hope, which is that God is going to do justice. 
And so God does justice in verses 1 to 5. But the second part of the gospel hope is that God is going to bring his people joy. That he will bless us and keep us. Right? He'll keep us justice. He'll bless us joy. So verses 6 to 12 describe that celebration. To describe the celebration of God's people, this God who has just kept his word and done according to his promises and fulfilled his plan. You remember back in chapter 24, we talked about how this, this judgment is going to affect every single person, no one excluded. And yet there is like a group of people, this little ark, they, who are singing praises to God through it all. So this is that group of people. This is why they are so happy and what they are saying. Look with me in verse 6. Here's what, here's what they're celebrating. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. So they're celebrating, and who are they? Right? Did you notice twice it says all peoples? All peoples are going to show up at the feast, and all peoples are going to be celebrating the lifting of the veil of death. So back in chapter 24, at the very beginning, there's this great emphasis on how God's judgment is going to affect everybody. In verse 2, it says, as it'll be with the people, so with the priest, as with the slaves, so with the master. And it goes on and says it's going to affect everybody. Well, just as that judgment is going to affect everybody, so everybody is invited to escape that judgment by putting their faith in the Lord. And so now people from all peoples are gathered here together to celebrate what God has done. And it says that they're, they're all welcome to a great feast. When's the last time that you had a great feast that you didn't have any hand in cooking and preparing and washing and cleaning for? Like, how, how young were you ladies? Like, four? <laughs> Three? Right? Like, I love that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the experience, you know, people, people always wonder, what's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? Everywhere in Scripture, it's the first image, the first metaphor, or whatever it is that's used to describe what it's going to be like is a great feast. That you didn't have any hand in cooking. So we're all going to go to the great feast. And the second thing that God did here is it says that all peoples are freed from the veil of death. This is an interesting expression. The veil that is spread over all nations, he'll swallow up death forever. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says that, that Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then listen to this. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Like, you know, over all of our plans, over all of our, everything that we think and do and how we interpret what's happened to us and what we're doing, what we're trying to do, there's this, there's this veil hanging over it. You know, we're all on this river, but we all hear the sound of the falls at the end. And it changes things. It makes everything a little more anxious. 
It makes everything a little more worrisome. It makes everything a little angrier. And that reduces our life to a series, for so many people, a series of slaveries. Because they're so afraid of death and what's going to come. But God did something here, Isaiah says. God's going to do something that's going to lift that veil. So those people who are in this feast, they don't, feel, they don't have to feel that anymore. They don't have to feel any of that anxiety, any of that worry, any of that FOMO, any of that, I only got three score and ten. They don't have to feel that anymore. All peoples are welcome to this great feast and freed from the veil of death. And so, verse 8, let's keep reading. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's going to remove this people's tears and their reproach. And that's really, now we're coming to the nub of the celebration here. What is reproach? Reproach is shame that we feel because we know ourselves to be disapproved of, that people are disappointed with us and and even disgusted with us because of our faith. I thought you were smart. You believe all that stuff? I thought she was a good person, but then it turns out she's like a religious nut. You know what I'm talking about? Psalm 69, verse 7. The psalmist says, It is for your sake that I've borne reproach, the dishonor, that dishonor has covered my face. Have you, have you felt that? Have you been in experiences where you feel that? Like you don't want to give up on your faith in the Lord, but you just feel like, oh, jeez. He goes on to say, the psalmist in Psalm 69, he says, Lord, you know my reproach and my shame, my dishonor. Reproaches have broken my heart and I am in despair. This is the experience that we have holding on to faith in this world. It's just what the experience that we all have. Faith is often very embarrassing. I'm not saying we all want to give up on being Christians. I'm just saying we got to talk about this because this is a big part of what this good news is centered on, that the re- reproach is removed. So we got to honor the reproach, that there are some times where we feel like real fools for believing this God. And, and right, have you felt this? Have, have you felt that, that, that moment of anxiety where you're like, do I have to identify myself as a Christian right now? Right? There's, there's moments sometimes in relationships and in social situations where you think, when do I need to let them know that I'm not just a God believer, but like a church attender? Not just like a, you know, intelligent design believer, but like a Bible reader and a prayer and angels and demons and heaven and hell and the whole bit. When do I? Do I have to tell them? Do I have to tell them? Right? We feel this, this tension and this anxiety. But Isaiah 25 says that that reproach is going to be removed. 
In verse 9, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Read that again with me. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. And this is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let's be glad now and rejoice in his salvation. God is going to show up and he is going to vindicate his people's faith. We waited for him, here he is. We waited for him, here he is. That is, I think, one of the most important things for us to hear. That Isaiah is saying that someday... All of us who all our lives are waiting for the Lord and trusting the Lord, someday that's going to be changed into sight. We're going to say we waited, we trusted, we hoped. Here he is. Here he is. And when that happens, verse 10 and 11, the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Listen to this imagery. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. You get a vision of a dung hill in your mind now. And Moab will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. <laughs> but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. You see what that's describing? He's going to take Moab and throw him in the pig pen. And Moab's going to have to try to swim to get out. It's kind of hard on Moab, right? Who, what, what did Moab do to deserve this? Now, Moab is kind of a, a symbol, right? You know, at this time, Assyria is the great big threat. So why does he pick Moab and not Assyria? Well, Moab, if you know your Old Testament much, you know like they kind of keep popping up as bad guys because they're the close and consistent people mocking God's people. They're the close and consistent source of reproach. You have a Moab in your life? You have people that are just right there? Now, they're not throwing you in prison and making you sit on bricks for days and sending you into Siberia so you lose fingers and toes, right? They're not doing that stuff quite to us, right? And we don't wish ill on them necessarily, but these are people who have lived next to Israel their entire existence and constantly, every chance they get, mocking them and making sure that they feel that reproach. But God is going to lay low. He's going to lay them low, all his people's enemies. And who's going to be eating poop then? That's what it says. God will vindicate faith in him. This is the point. This is the point of this passage, that God will vindicate faith in him. He will vindicate faith in him. Vindication means I will make it evident that your faith in me has actually been the right decision all along. That's what vindication means. You say, why didn't you have faith in me? That was the right decision. They're vindicated. God is going to vindicate faith in him. And every time, this is what the phrase, uh, God is trustworthy, this is what it means. Every time we say, God is trustworthy, believe in God, it means that someday there's going to be a moment where God's going to say, 
That was the right decision. They did it right. Those who put their faith in me did it right. Friends, faith is the right decision. Every time faith is the right decision. Every time we come to a, a faith decision, we feel like faith feels like what? Faith feels like foolishness. But faith is always going to be the right decision. And someday when we're standing there next to him, and we say, behold, here he is, we're going to look back on our lives and we're going to think every time we didn't walk the walk of faith, every time we didn't make a decision based on faith, we're going to feel, then we're going to feel like real fools. Faith is the right decision, and God's people will not always look foolish. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. We'll remember the name of the Lord our God. They're going to be brought down and fallen, and we are going to be raised up and stand firm forever. And I think this is such an important thing to talk about right now. We're in this season in our culture in America where like everybody is deconverting. Right? Every week you're hearing a story about somebody that uh, you thought was a Christian, some social media influencer or some celebrity or, or somebody who is deconverting. Right? These, these brave, courageous people who after meeting with their accountants realize that uh, there's no longer a significant monetizable social advantage in claiming to be a person of faith. And so they deconvert. They're going to regret it. That's what Isaiah 25 is saying. They are going to regret it. And friends, your faith is always going to be mocked and always going to be undermined in the world. We've gotten used to a little season in this culture where it was kind of okay, but it's never been okay. Every empire, every culture in human history is against the authentic faith of God's people subverting it, undermining it, however they can. But what Isaiah 25 says is that there is going to be a day of a great reversal. And on that day of great reversal, you are going to receive a great reward for your faith. The reproach is going to be removed. And uh, because you and I are sinners, we're going to feel such a relief in that moment. Right? You ever like uh, watch a sporting event or you know, like and you talk up your, your, your guy that you're rooting for, your person, and, and then they're like, they, they stink for like the whole thing and you're just like, oh. And then they come from behind and win. You're like, oh, I knew it all the time. I knew, I knew they were going to be all right. I knew we were going to win. I, I never doubted, right? That's what it's going to be at that moment. We're all going to be blushing, looking at Jesus and kind of getting sweaty and going, oh, I, I knew you were going to do it. I knew you were going to do it. He knows what's been going on. But what this is describing is that moment of huge existential relief. Every faith decision that you've ever made is going to be in that moment validated, vindicated. And I just want you to, I just want to, I'm just going to take a second here, and I just want you to receive that, luxuriate in that for a minute. This is what the, the psalmist says, calls Selah. Right? So just for a moment, think about how good that will feel when you see Jesus after having put your faith in him for your whole life.
You know, one of the great gifts of Isaiah 25 is that it, it allows us, it forces us to step outside of time so that we can look on what's in our lives right now today from that perspective. Like, you're all facing something. Every single one of us is facing something that we don't want to talk about, we don't want to think about. And it's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. And what Isaiah wants us to do is he wants us to bring that end times, that eschatological perspective into this moment where we think, how would I view this moment in light of that moment when I'm standing next to Jesus, celebrating with his people, saying, we waited for him and here he is. Bring that perspective into today. Now it says here in verse 9, it says, it will be said on that day. On that day. So what day is this passage looking forward to? Right? Was there, is there a day, was there a day when on that mountain, on Jerusalem, when God swallowed up death forever? Was there a day when his salvation and his triumph over his enemies was worked and finally brought about through his king, his anointed one? Was there that day? Of course, you know the answer to that is yes. Boy, there's a lot of slides there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death and rescued all those enslaved to the fear of death. In that moment when Jesus died, he lifted the veil that is spread over all nations, the fear of death. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. He threw them through the rails and into the pig pen. And they will be ashamed. So Jesus did all this. His death accomplished this reversal and his resurrection victory is the great vindication of our faith. And like with so many things in the Christian life, though, of course, there's an already and a not yet aspect to this. Every single one of his disciples who met him risen, they all died, for the most part, they died as a result of persecution. His disciples all died for their faith, but I want you to know something. Their reproach was gone. Think about that for a second. They still suffered but the reproach was gone. Every single one of them said, you remember how we were waiting for this God? You remember how for thousands of years our people have been praying and singing and waiting for and hoping in and trying to obey and follow this God? He came. He came and we saw Him. And we lived with Him. They felt no reproach any longer. They didn't feel any of that shame, any of that dishonor, any of that sense of disgust. They just felt... Sadness for everybody who, who didn't know what they knew yet. They, they got to say that, you get to say it too. Your God has come. So you're still going to suffer. There's still going to be problems. But you don't have to carry this reproach anymore. Right? The good news of what Isaiah 25 is talking about has already happened. Right, the, the cross and Christ's life, birth, life, death, resurrection, victory, these are real events that happened in history. And you and I can really enter into them today and our lives can really change as a result. Guaranteed. But we do not see this in full. We still see persecution. We still see sufferings in our lives. 
Right, the, the, the Bible ends with the expression, come Lord Jesus, come. Written by one of his apostles in exile on the island of Patmos. So we are still suffering, but the reproach is gone. And I think that makes Isaiah 25 even more useful for us. Because not only is this passage true, and we've seen it come to, to fruition, fruition in Jesus, but it's also helpful. Because we're in this very similar situation to the first audience. We're still, to some extent, waiting. We're celebrating, but we're also still waiting. So here's the, the big application for this passage. is keep all your eggs in this one basket. A diverse portfolio is wise investing advice. And if you're into investing, you should have a diverse portfolio. Unless you know something. Right? If you know something, you get those eggs in that basket. Keep your eggs in this basket. In the language of the Writer here, Isaiah, verse 9, he says, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So to combine these realities into one, we want to wait for Christ, but with a sense of gladness. Wait with a sense of gladness. We still have to wait, but we can already be glad. What we have seen Jesus do already, what we have seen God do, we know he's going to do again. Now, waiting just, we hate, right? Who here loves to wait? We hate waiting, right? The whole reason none of us want to ever go to the DMV is why? Because you're going to wait. You're going to wait, right? We hate waiting. So, do we have to wait forever, God? Do we have to wait forever? And the answer is, two, is no for two reasons. First of all, no, because as, the, as Paul talks about it, this is just a moment. He says, your light momentary affliction is working for you an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. He says, in comparison to what's coming, not only is this light, but it's also momentary. So while we feel like the days are dragging, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, pretty soon we're going to look back and say, oh, that wasn't long. And the second reason we're not having to wait forever is because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who throughout the New Testament is described as the first fruits. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of the feast. The feast has begun, and the Spirit is the first fruits of that. The Spirit is the, the appetizer. The appetizer, the presence of which you say, there's a meal after this? Right? That's what the Spirit is. God is with us. We're going to, friends, you and I, we know this. There's, there's no religious uh, short circuit for this. We're going to suffer and we're going to die. But what we know through all of this, we can do it all reproach free because we know that God keeps his word. We know that Jesus vindicates faith in him. We know that we can wait with gladness. We can keep all our eggs in that basket and praise God because there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. This is it. And so while it is hard to wait and faith can be embarrassing, but it's not going to last forever and it doesn't have to even, it doesn't even have to happen today. 
Jesus vindicates our faith. We know that God will come through. He will wipe away all the tears. He will wipe away all the reproach. And so, friends, let them be wiped away. We know that that day's coming. Let it be today. Believe it. Put another egg in the basket. Jesus has come. He's going to come. Someday we're going to see him face to face, but none of us have to wait to know him in our lives. And none of us have to wait to be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this passage of Scripture that gives us this vision to this day that's coming. This day that was when the disciples met and saw the risen Lord and this day that's still coming for us as well. When our faith is going to be vindicated. When our faith is going to be revealed to be to have been the right decision. And Lord, you know the heaviness that all of us feel in this regard. All of us have people in our lives who make us wonder and make us feel like our faith is kind of dumb and it's weak and it's pointless. And so we're so thankful for this word that reveals through time this moment when it will be revealed to have not been dumb or pointless, but to be true. To have been the right decision all along. And so, Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us to you. We are so thankful for the faith that you have given us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith through this word, that you would strengthen us according to your word. That as we, as we live in a world full of deconversion stories and we feel so much undermining of our faith on a day-to-day basis, Lord, would you give us strength to walk through our life with this spirit that we are waiting for the Lord and here he is, our Lord Jesus. So Lord Jesus, be with us now. By the work of your spirit, help us to see this clearly and to feel it in a powerful way today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.